This is Playing Around with Paige Renee. We are back for another episode of Playing Around, and we have a very special guest today. I'm super excited about this. Michael Carson, he used to play tight end for the Buffalo Bills, the Jacksonville Jaguars, and Washington. Can't say the rest of it, but let's go with Washington. (laughs) He also has a successful podcast called Wind Down with his beautiful wife. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am super excited that you're here. Thank you, Paige. Thanks for having me. You know, when uh, everyone at iHeart kind of linked this up and and put this together, I was super pumped. And you talk about so many great things on your podcast. And I love your openness to just all aspects of life, whether it's sports, personal and everything else. So it's uh, we're gonna have a lot of fun today. Yeah, for sure. I love your podcast. I was just going to say that too, because you talk about everything and anything and you're so open. And that's why I was really excited to have you on. And I feel like we have kind of gone through similar things with, you know, like depression and just dealing with a lot. So I, I'm excited to have you on today. But first, like, how did you get into football? (laughs) I mean, it's one of those things. It was my entire life, you know, and uh, as much as my dad tried to pull a Tiger Woods with me and put a golf club in my hand at three. Now, looking back 30 years later, I wish I would have listened to him. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it was just something I did. It was you know, my entire life spending doing that. I played all sports, but then once I got into college and my second year of college, I kind of realized I was like, ah, I'm kind of good at this. Like (laughs) this might turn into something. So yeah. And then the rest is history. That's great. So what team did you play for first? I was with Jacksonville first, but really I, I spent four of the five years I was in the NFL in Buffalo. So I really, you know, um, consider myself a, a bill and uh, that's where my loyalty still remains. So the other teams, the Washington football team and uh, the, the Jacksonville Jaguars are just teams that I kind of basically had a cup of coffee with. Um, but yeah, most of my career is in Buffalo, and I love the people and the fans up there. I mean, the fans there are insane. I mean, they I live and die over their football. Was that just so cool to be a part of? Yeah, it was. I mean... You know, it, it's such a collegiate environment because of the way the fans are and the way the town is. So it's a small town feel, even though you're playing at a professional level. And not to bring up a somber story, but they're so diehard that, like you said, they live or die. And we had just beaten somebody. We just had a, I think we might have beaten the Patriots or something at home. And we're rolling into the stadium through the security gate. And they're like, hey, you know, congrats on the win. But just so you know, there's cops and ambulances back here. They found somebody like dead and a ditch behind the stadium and it was so sad and we felt so terrible and we're it was just like one of those things where perspective oh. of life right like we're all pumped up about this victory which was huge but then it's like life comes and hits you it's like oh man like we love that the fans are great but let's not go do that did, did <laughs> yeah. he die jumping off onto a table no he was <laughs> drunk out of, su- surprisingly not he was drunk out of his mind and he ended up there's like this little ravine down behind uh the the facility in orchard park and he like fell down and hit his head and the rest is history it was brutal but uh yeah Good so Lord. on that somber note <laughs> well, I was ask, have you up. have you ever uh crushed a white table i have not i have never not. sad to oh well college i mean who hasn't but oh. <laughs> no uh you know as, that would have been fun to do to kind of go out there and tailgate with 
with fans after a game and go and do that. But then the liability of it, and if we got yeah. hurt, coaches would not be happy. <laughs> that would be epic if that was like your rookie right? raising where you had to jump on a white table and be like, then you're initiated. <laughs> yeah, right. It reminds me of like the Barstool Sports. I don't know if you guys have seen it, like where they had like their their uh, baby announcement to figure out what kind of baby by like throwing his kid on like a little white table. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, that is literal Bill's mafia to the max. A hundred percent. I love that. Well, you talked about something really interesting and something that I have dealt with as well is kind of finding your footing after playing professional sports and mm-hmm. how difficult that is. Tell me a little bit about that journey. You know, it's one of those things where there's people, regardless of sports or not, right? They, they'll be in their 30s or 40s and still say, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up, right? So everyone's still like, not everyone is still, but a lot of people are constantly search for that. And you know how it is as, as an athlete at an elite level and professionally and even throughout your entire life, the farther you go in that sport, the harder it is to transition. And so when it becomes your life, it becomes your career and that's all you've known for the previous however many years, and then you come out of that, even when you're labeled as that still to this day, if you if there's anything in print about my wife and I, it's always former NFL tight end Mike Cawson attached to my name every single time. And so it's, it's hard to es- escape that, especially when you didn't, you weren't able to accomplish things that you set out to accomplish. Yeah. And that makes it even harder. And, I, and I'm sure maybe you can relate to that where it's – and my wife tries to pick me up and say, yeah, but you did this, you did that. I was like, all right, that's great. And maybe when I'm in my 50s, I'll be able to look back and be like, all right, that was pretty cool. But you just – you set out goals for yourself, and when you don't reach them, no matter what it's in, it's 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 difficult to swallow. Oh, 100%. I feel like that's the hardest thing when it came to my golf career – where, yeah, I played professionally, but I didn't make it onto the LPGA Tour, and I accomplished a lot, but I still feel like a failure almost every Mm -hmm. single day. And I didn't stop playing on my own terms in the sense where I had this long-lasting career, and I was happy with everything that I accomplished and everything that I won. And now I'm moving on to media. It's like I had to move on to media because I I wasn't good enough to play full time and that sucks to like realize and every single day I wake up thinking like gosh I wasn't good enough and now I have to do this. <laughs> right. And it's I mean to your point what else in life do we have that really makes you have that emotional rush like sports? You know what I mean? Like when yeah. you're when you're playing in, in on your level and and playing those games it's like after you're done, yeah, you can go out and play around a round of golf and if you get a hole in one, you know, that's amazing, you're going to have that rush, but the competitiveness and the pressure in those moments, there's nothing in life that can really reenact that feeling that you have in sports. So have you been able to find anything on your end like that that you try to find that give you that exhilarating feeling? I mean, you're like you're saying, it's so hard. For me, I didn't love competing and I almost didn't love that feeling. And so it's more of like an ego hit where I didn't make it instead of like getting finding that like fired up feeling for me but I know a lot of um ex-athletes are now adrenaline junkies because they're just trying to get that feeling again so they're doing things that are you know like getting into motorbiking or whatever any anything they can possibly do to like get their competitive juices flowing again like what's been the one thing for you that gets you excited 
I, you know, I'm guilty of trying to find that thing. So yeah. I have a laundry list of hobbies. I'm into in. I have this addictive personality, and so my wife kind of jokes on me because once I get into something, I'm like, like all in. Whether it's like road cycling, which I picked up a few months ago, um, you know, <laughs> firearms, golf has always been one of those for me. It's like, and I always want to tinker and do things and, and learn about whatever it is that I'm in. So there's not one thing, but there is a multitude of things. I was like, man, maybe I have too many hobbies because it gets costly. It gets time consuming. I'm like, I have a wife <laughs> and two kids. How am I going to balance all of this? So that's been, I've gone with quantity over quality so far. Have you, has it been easy to enjoy it? Let's say like you were saying you picked up golf. I know like when I do something new, I still have that competitiveness inside me and I almost don't even enjoy it because if I'm not the best at it, I don't even want to do it because that's what I'm mm -hmm. used to. Mm -hmm. Luckily with something like golf, I've been playing most of my life. So I accept the, uh, the rough days, you know, a little <laughs> bit more, but still it's, it's that competitor in me that, you know, I, I want to like motherfuck myself <laughs> for getting a, getting a double <laughs> yeah. bogey. But I'm like, I, I don't play every day. Like, what do I expect? Like, I shoot an 85. I'm like, I'm terrible. It's like, what, what do I expect if I'm not, you know, out there practicing and playing every day? Yeah. And you've also talked about your depression. And that's something that I've been really open with about all the mental health issues with my anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's real stigma when it comes to men being open about mental health. How have you been able to overcome that? Great question. I appreciate that. Um, it's, I've just had to kind of dive in with both feet where, you know, with my wife and I's story, we felt like we couldn't be as open as we wanted to if we didn't put everything out there, both mm -hmm. individually for ourselves and as a couple. So, you know, it's one of those things I was like, this is an opportunity for me to you know, give men a place to listen where they, where they feel safe and feeling those vulnerable feelings of, you know, I don't, you don't have to have everything figured out. You don't have to be able to be strong enough to handle it or rub some dirt on it. And it took me a long time to, to own up to the fact that, yeah, I got, I'm depressed. Like I, I can't do this alone. I, I need to find something spiritually, medically, you know, anything to, to help fulfill me because I'm empty. And so it wasn't until I started addressing that and owning that, you know, and I'm sure you can relate too. it's like when you start talking about those vulnerable things, they seem so taboo because no one talks about it. So you're scared that people are going to criticize you or, you know, but it's only our own fears and insecurities that get in the way. Because when you start to share those things, you realize how many people come out of the woodwork, you know, with positivity. And so that's really, you know, reassuring to, to see that people ultimately want to relate to someone like them and are compassionate. I mean, I, same as you, just get flooded with messages from people saying that they're dealing with it and it's nice to know that someone else is kind of overcoming it. And for me, it's been, I've always had it my entire life. I've always just been a very anxious person and struggled a lot with depression in college and I never really, I'm still trying to find what works for me. Um, CBD oil, I use Matera, that seems to be like the one thing. But even for me, like I use medication, it didn't work for me. I've been to multiple therapists and that almost didn't work for me. What's, what's some advice that you'd give to someone who is struggling and they don't know what the first steps for them would be? 
so you know oftentimes medication is the first thing that people run to and i've and i take some medication for both depression and anxiety but that i don't think that's the biggest thing that's helped me for me it's been it really as as cliche as it might sound it has been meditation and it's something i do every single morning i have this little book it's called touchstones it's actually meditations directed towards men um so it's speaking to you as a man and i don't put this pressure on myself where i have to sit there and you know all of a sudden become monk-like and meditate for two hours i'll read it i'll sit there for maybe five minutes maybe a minute and a half but if i just sit there and start my morning with collecting myself and being grounded and not going to my phone or not going to emails or work or whatever it may be, I just kind of sit with myself and being and reflecting on what's going on with me. I'm able to start my day be like, okay, I'm okay with me today. Like I'm enough today, you know, and that's such a hard thing. And I can't, it's just so interesting because I'm, you know, we know people look at social media, they probably look at your page and it's like, how in the world is page depressed? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, they look at these pictures that you look at your life or all the things you're able to do. And it's like, why, why would she be depressed? She has nothing, nothing to be depressed about. And little do people know what goes on behind closed doors. Yeah. Or mentally. I mean, I, when you said, like, you're enough, that, like, really struck a chord with me because that's something that, like, I'm always searching for is, like, feeling like I'm enough and feeling like I'm worthy. So with your podcast, Wind Down, you are extremely open. And we've mentioned that earlier. Did it take some time for you to feel comfortable being vulnerable for, I mean, millions of people to <laughs> listen to your struggles. Like, I get that question a lot. People are like, how, how is it that you're so real and open and honest? And to me, it's just something like, it's therapy for me and I like talking about it. And I've never yeah. even like thought that I shouldn't do that. But was there some hesitation on your part? For, sh- for sure. Um, for two reasons. Number one, yeah, being a male and being that open and, and making up in my head that people would look at it as me being weak when really it's quite the opposite. And the second is my wife. You know, she she was able to see the big picture way earlier than I was being like, hey, if we talk about these things that have gone on in our life and in your life and our relationship and we get ahead of it and we control the narrative, we can help a lot of people. But I was stuck in my shame you know, no one wants to be the perpetrator or looked at as the bad guy. And I was just so, so stuck in my shame. That's what I, I made up that everyone would think of me. And then just one day on our podcast, we finally took the leap. And I was just like, fuck it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what am I holding on to? Like, it, whatever. And it was just, we were overwhelmed with the amount of positive feedback and the amount of people being like, I don't feel alone because of the things that you both talk about or because of what you talk about, whether it's addiction or depression or not feeling good enough, which I don't know if I'll ever feel good enough in my (laughs) life. You know, I don't know if us that are cursed with that feeling can ever, you know, really live with that, but it's just one of those things. Yeah. And I was going to say with like living in a locker room for so long with like all those boys and like teammates that you spend so much time with, did anyone else know your struggle or like, did anyone ever know? Or did you feel like you had to like almost come out to a whole new wave of like your life of being like, Hey, I've spent all this time in the locker room with you guys and like no one really knew me or do you feel like they did? No, that's a great, great question and point. Um, yes and no. Like I thought I was honest with 
myself and people around me. But the thing is, the things that I were I was doing, I was, you know, damaging my soul was glorified Mm -hmm. in the locker room. Right. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So it was one of those things where it's like I just got deeper and deeper into my addiction and things that I was doing because people love to hear stories about it. They again, it was glorified. And so the interesting thing was when I was done with football and after I kind of started going through this, you know, process of recovery and I'd say I'd get a, a text message from an old teammate and he would say something like, Oh, you know, old Mike, we need old Mike and send a inappropriate picture or something like that. Like that was the moment it was hard because I'd have to text them back and be like, Hey man, like I love you, but that's not me now. And my fear around that being like, they would look at me different. They would, you know, think of me different was never validated, which was great. Everybody that I ever had to text that to completely understood, but it's hard to do that when people know you as one person and then you have this drastic, you know, change, um, to, to have to put that guard and be like, Hey man, I'm not about that these days. So there's definitely that obstacle later on. I feel like, yeah, that almost like hurts your manhood a little bit too, just cause like the male social construct is like girls and money and like strip clubs and like, right. I mean, like I'm totally, talk, I'm totally right? labeling. Yeah. I'm totally labeling mm-hmm. like athletes as well. Like this is not <laughs> the specific to each person. I'm just saying generalized, like, especially in that realm, it's all about like parties, bitches and hoes. <laughs> right. Right. <That laughs> so was, it's like was, to have yeah. to do that would be like kind of vulnerable. And yeah. I hate to be vulnerable. So I couldn't imagine to be honest. Yeah. It, it, it was, it was tough, but uh, I mean, yeah, that was a great question, T. I appreciate that one. In college, I drank a lot, and I was doing all of that because I felt like I had to fit in. I was homeschooled from fifth grade until college. I was socially awkward, and I didn't really know how to be accepted. And so I just tried to copy what everyone else was doing. And that actually hurt me more than anything. Did this with like your addiction and your depression, did it, was it stemmed from trying to please other people and trying to seem like you were cool to them? Or was it something that you were just doing to feel fulfilled? I know we're like giving you like hardball questions right now. No, I love it. (laughs) I'm all about it. I love the hardball questions. Um, It's a majority of it was just my own internal demons. Um, That's one thing I'll say regardless of addiction or not. I was never one to necessarily bend with the masses too much. Like, yeah, everyone gets peer pressured by their friends, right? And it's just like, okay, come on. Um, but I didn't, but also nights I didn't want to go out or nights I didn't want to do something, I had no problem. Be like, no, fuck you. I'm not going out. Like, leave me alone. <laughs> so it was more just to uh, suppress my emotions, my internal emotions, my inner demons, and shit that I didn't know how to express emotionally, I handled in other ways. And so it was definitely just internal stuff well this i feel like this this is like a really good talk to have for like what our next segment's going to be with college football right now and like Mm -hmm. the lack of structure or maybe you guys have different opinions on it but just like 
what that means for these 18-year-old boys, you know, like going in with like identity crisis and now having this like kind of stripped away, which I know we can get in in a little bit, but I feel like that's, I, I don't know. I mean, I clearly my biased opinion is saying that like I'm nervous for these 18-year-olds not having the structure, you know, and their identity be kind of ripped out from them. Yeah, I'm nervous think? for a lot of it. Um, I mean, hopefully there's rooms of people a lot smarter than all of us that are trying to figure out the best thing for, for this whole situation. But in my mind, you, they just got to take it on the chin, cancel the season, move on to winter training and spring ball, and not allow the ripple effect to affect more seasons than just this one. So, as we already know, the Big Ten already postponed their fall season, followed by the Pac-12 nearly immediately after that. And I'm not really sure what's going to happen with the Power Five going forward. And I was just curious on how that's going to impact these kids because they normally will go and they have the structure and they know exactly what they need to do. And now they might not have any of that, especially for the fall. I don't know if we'll see football at all. All I mean, the earliest I can probably imagine is Thanksgiving, and but more likely probably not till January, February. And I think that the NCAA can do a better job of preparing college kids for life after sports. I feel mm-hmm. like when you're in college, you only have a dream to play professionally. And mm-hmm. yes, there's a focus on your academics, but kind of like not really depending right. on the school that you're at. And I wish they had like a crash course on how to survive when you don't play professionally after college and how to enter the real world again. Because I feel like I was thrown out there. I had no idea what I was doing and nothing. I I mean, I wasn't prepared like at all. And Mm -hmm. I wish they did a better job of preparing all of the kids after school, especially when you do have so much structure and Mm -hmm. you're supposed to wake up at six. You know, you have weights and then you have practice and you have school and then you have study hall and then you have practice again. And then all of a sudden you're just thrown out there with no stability at all. At all. And that's, you know, I hope there's a trend that moves forward where every college will end up retaining some kind of therapist or psychiatrist on staff for these athletes to come and talk to because right like who do we go talk to in college no one really because we're not mature enough to go have those conversations if we do it's to our friends then we drink our feelings and we sleep with somebody to to suppress our feelings (laughs) or we go to like our academic advisor and they're they can only they're just trying to help you pass classes and your coaches are just trying Mm -hmm. to milk you for all your talent that you have so I hope that people are starting to wake up to all the mental health issues and they're willing to help these kids to your exact point page because coming out of all that stuff into no structure, it's just you're lost. You're a lost puppy. A hundred percent. I mean, even when I was in school my senior year, I was really struggling. That's when I was at my lowest. And my coach, I lost a lot of weight. I was struggling with depression. I had an eating disorder. And my coach said, okay, well, you'll just see the doctor on campus. And then we had a 10-minute mm. conversation. She put me on medication. And then I almost jumped off a building because it just didn't work for me. And I'm like, I literally could have killed myself because there wasn't someone on campus who I could talk to when I was going through all of my shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I appreciate your being vulnerable page. And to that point, it's like just to be able to verbally say 
with the the motion and the weight that it has on it like you're I understand just where you're coming from just because where I where I've been emotionally but the fact that you're saying like I was willing to jump off a building I was ready to kill myself like that's that's not something who that, that's not something that's taken like lightly especially with with someone that's you know battled depression that has mentally you know learned more about themselves emotionally it's not like we're just saying it just as a saying you know when you deal with this stuff that shit is a reality and when stuff comes up i just i just talked to jan the other night and i had to talk to my sponsor about it something came up between jan and i she thought one thing nothing ever became of it it was there's no wrongdoing but just the trigger of the shame that I was feeling in this moment for that, for even if for that split second, I was like, man, maybe killing myself is the right answer. Yeah. And this was just a week ago. Yeah. And it's like, that's what fucking depression will do to you <laughs> as stupid as it is, but it's scary as hell just to have that thought for a second and to still have it with all of the work that you may be doing that I may be doing or whatever. That shit doesn't go away. You know, you, you, you find healthy ways to to live with it, but it's just, it's it's real. And people that don't go through it or don't deal with it don't understand the weight that it carries. No, they don't understand it. And I think one thing that really bothers me is when people say that if you're struggling with anxiety or depression or any mental health issues that you're weak and it's actually the opposite i think we are the strongest people out there because the easy option is just to end it and we fight every single day to keep living to wake up to even if we don't feel like there's any meaning in our life we still keep putting one foot in front of the other and i think people need to hear that it's tough to talk about for sure, but I think more people are going through this, especially now. I don't know about you, but with COVID going on, it's been it's been rough. Like the last couple of weeks have just been rough because normally I'm traveling, I have all these distractions, and now I just sit home and I think about my life <laughs> and I think about everything I haven't accomplished, and I'm like, I, <laughs> I'm not enough, you know. And that's like the hardest part. And I think that's where everyone's struggling now because life is slowed down and everyone has to sit back and like, yeah, be like, this is me. Like this is what I have done in my life. You have to come to terms with who you are, and I think. That is by far the scariest thing anyone can ever do in their life. Very well said. And I completely agree with you. And I think that's why there's no coincidence that divorces have gone astronomically through the roof during these past five, six months because of that. You don't have all these distractions or things to, to keep you separate from one another or from yourself. So it's yeah, that's been dangerous having all this time to... <laughs> To think about, hey, remember all those things I didn't accomplish that I wanted to? Yeah, think about that today. What yeah, a great like, day. I like, lay awake, wide awake at night, and I'm just like, man, I suck at life. You know? Right? Like, I, <laughs> right? I, you, think, you think on your day, you're like, what did I do today? Nothing, because I am worthless, and I suck. Yeah. yeah. Real encouraging. Yeah, it's funny, because, like, us talking this makes so much sense and I'm sure other people are like oh my god these people are absolutely insane but like you were saying if you haven't gone through it it's really hard to relate and I feel like I don't know if your wife is you know very open and supporting about it, it seems like she is but you need mm -hmm. to have people in your life who can keep you grounded and to keep you going and um 
that understand what you're going through. And I'm lucky that I have such a great support system around me, but it's hard. I can't imagine some people just being alone and not having anyone to help them through this because you definitely need that. It's like that's one tip of advice I have for people. It's like surround yourself with good, solid, grounding people who can mm-hmm. be there for you. Yeah. It, when you deal with this, you learn, you understand like the, the concept of, you know, people around, you want to be around people that make you better. Right. And that's what like my wife, I, I've told her numerous times. I was like, if I didn't have you like through all of this realization of addiction and trying to do through recovery and all of that, I was like, there's a saying in recovery where it's like, you're going to either end up dead or in the gutter. And I was like, if I didn't have you, I would be one of those two places. I was like, you are the reason and our kids are the reason like I'm able to keep fighting and remind myself that when I have those moments of like feeling like a worthless piece of shit, like it's like, no, I'm, I'm not, I don't have to be selfish today. It's not about me or the feelings I'm feeling. It's about the people that I love that are in my life because if I'm not here, then that's selfish, you know, cause you know, they mm. deserve to have a dad. They do. She deserves to have a husband here. And it's just what it, the, the, the thing is, is those people that maybe listen to this and like these motherfuckers are crazy. <laughs> I don't really care about them because all it takes is the one person who understands what we are going through. That's all that matters to me. I'll take one of those over 15 others that don't understand because to mm-hmm. that one person you understand with all the DMS that you may get and emails and all of that, how much that helps them just to hear someone else talk about it. And not saying that we're anybody special, but just to hear another human being open up about these issues that they may deal with too. It's like, that's what we need more of. Yeah. I have two questions. One, knowing what you've experienced, would you, do you want, or would you let your kids play sports? And two, you talk so highly about your wife. How did you guys meet? I want to know that story. Um, Paige, I'm going to defer to you real quick. What, what do you, are you going to let your kid play sports? And are you going to steer them in any direction? Absolutely. I think that it teaches you more good than bad. And I would not be where I am today without having sports and the structure in my life. I think it teaches you how to wake up and work with a team, to stay motivated, to be determined, to fight through adversity. There's so much good to it. I think mm-hmm. that... A lot of the bad came from me and my own issues and the self-induced pressure that I put on myself. And that's, I mean, that's something that I'm going to work through. And it doesn't matter if, I mean, I do that with this podcast. I mean, I've really struggling with this podcast. I'm like, how can I make it better? How can I, you know, reach out to more people? I want to keep doing more and more and more. And it's like, I drive myself as crazy doing this as I, I did playing sports. And I use golf especially now as a form of therapy i'll go to the range and just beat golf balls you know from morning Mm -hmm. to night and i love sports and i think every kid should at least play when they're younger or have some kind of interaction in sports before i answer did you always play did you play golf like was that your main sport from the beginning so I was a competitive gymnast, and I did that from about 6 to 13. Um, okay. And I was trying to go to the Olympics, fractured my kneecap a couple times, and then had to quit, and then tried tennis for about a week. Uh, my <laughs> aunt was a professional tennis player. I come from a very sports-heavy family, and then I went into golf, and that became, like, my sole focus. 
Is there a different pressure with because I feel like all three of those, even though you can be a part of a bigger team, right? There, when you're competing, it's individual based. Is is there that much more of a greater, like a, a bigger pressure that's on you? Because I feel like that would wear you down even more over time. Yeah, I mean, when I'm having a bad day on the golf course, I can't turn to my teammate and go, hey, can you bail me out? Or coach, can you take right. me out? I am out on the golf course for five hours struggling. And yeah. as you know, golf is such an ego killer. It <laughs> it can make grown men fall to their knees and cry. There's <laughs> something about golf that is so – it's a mind fucker. It oh, sucks. Yeah. And playing that, and especially with my personality, being a perfectionist and wanting to be the best at what I do, it, it wasn't good for me. And I would cry every single day I didn't play well. I cried every day I did play well because I thought I could do better. And then also just the pressure of everyone's opinions about me because I am athletic and ever since I started, they're like, you're going to be number one in the world. You're going to be top five in the world. You're going to make it. And I never made it. And that sucks. And so like, that's the hardest part was going out there and feeling I disappointed everyone else because it's only on me. It's not on anyone else. It's on my shoulders. Ooh, that's heavy. <laughs> that's. I feel like I'm back in college feeling all the sport emotions again. Right? Like, see, that's the thing. That's, you know, I was always team sports and so yeah you still feel the individual pressure because you want to live up to your own expectations or your coaches or your parents or whatever but that's a whole nother level of pressure when so I would but to the question like I'm not going to steer my kids away from sports yeah and I wouldn't steer them away from individual sports like golf or gymnastics or or tennis or anything but and the most popular question I get is are you gonna let your kids play football I'm like yes really yes no Here's really the thing. we all we all know. sign up we understand the liability we sign up for this stuff now granted on the back end we want like the NFL to take care of us which we're still working on but I'm not gonna steer them away from it I'm gonna let our kids play what they want to play yeah and just teach them teach them the right technique and, and all of that but shit they can get in a car wreck leaving the house they can fall off a curb and tear their tear the ocl you know mm -hmm. what I mean? they can jump on the trampoline in the backyard and <laughs> hit their head and get a concussion like it yeah you know what i mean you can life will is gonna fuck you up i you mean true I mean? emotionally more than anything which is worse than physically <laughs> not gonna fight you on that one but do you think football has now gotten too soft on the field yes. because of everything on the field it's still a collision sport it, yeah i think they're taking away some things like with the whole if they eventually take off kickoffs and stuff like a guy like me right. like that's how i made my living you know i was never the yeah. star but i was out there doing whatever i could to be on the team now i will say i'll start coaching at some point only high school because i don't want to do anything past that <laughs> And whenever I do coach, these parents and kids are in for a rude awakening because I'm of old school mindset and we're going to toughen them up real quick because I don't I don't like the softness that's going into in the, in the <laughs> youth and high school sports. But. Well, I actually have a piggyback on Tori's question. So for me, I always felt like my parents were too hard on me and I blamed a lot of my failure mm. on them. 
And now thinking back on it, it was all self-induced pressure from myself and I was using them as almost like a cop-out. I don't know how your parents were, if they were, they've pushed you into it, but how do you think you're going to be with your kids when it comes to sports? Are you going to be tough on them? And also how, what did you learn from your parents that you want to do better? Because I know I get a lot of questions from people saying like, how do I get my kids to get a college scholarship to college? Or how do I get them interested in golf or whatever it may be? How do I take them to that next level? And I always would say the opposite of what my parents did because I feel like they fucked me up, which isn't actually true. They did everything they should be doing. And I know I'm going to be the exact same way with my kids as my parents were with me because they were so great. What, how do you feel about that? Oh, man. This is, this is a fastball right down the middle. Um, <laughs> I love this, this kind of topic of conversation because – I was the same way where I blamed my parents, mostly my father for 98% of my shit. Um, that's where I get the whole, I'm never enough because it was always, you got a B, why didn't you get an A? Oh, you, uh. you got, you know, all state, why didn't you get all met? You got that, yep. you know what I mean? It was always, even to this day, I don't know if my dad ever said when I was in the NFL, like, I'm proud of you for like mm. making it this far. I don't think he ever has. Like like sincerely, like yeah. looked at me yeah. and said, I'm really proud of what you've done. Um, but to your point, Paige, like I know my parents did the best that they could. You know, we learned that as parents and the older I get and the older my kids get, I definitely understand that. So will I be like my parents were? Yes, to an extent, because there's a lot of positive characteristics I got from my dad from him being the way he is. My ability to stay cool under pressure, my work ethic, my relentlessness, because I'm not satisfied with mediocrity. So there there are aspects of that where it's like, all right, yeah, if he was sitting there saying, oh, great job, like every single time, like who knows if I would have made the NFL. If yeah. it wasn't for him being a hard ass, I don't know if I would have been tough enough to do it. So there are aspects, but it's being able to at least acknowledge that, like you're saying blaming you're blaming your parents for so long but then realize you play a part too and once we're able to take responsibility for that then we're able to uh, dissect the things we want to take from the parent from our parents and the things that we don't so there is it's going to be a battle but you know we have those days where you're just reacting and Jana will look at me and be like you are your dad right now (laughs) and I'll be like no (laughs) you did not you know so it's uh it's a battle, but I mean, as long as you can just reflect back and understand what's what, then hopefully you can dissect it. It's it's crazy to think about because everything that you're saying right now, I can relate to so strongly. And sometimes <laughs> it's like hard to talk. It's like, it's hard it to is. talk about, but at the same time, it's so comforting to hear that someone else has gone through what I have been through or something similar. And you make me feel like normal. Like I'm not crazy. Cause I think something that's always been so hard for me my entire life is that I've just felt so different and I can never relate to anyone and no one else is going through what I'm going through. And even though I do get all those messages from other people, it is nice to just hear it again from someone else and to have such an open discussion. And I just want to thank you for being so open and so honest. And I feel that 
so many people are listening to this right now and you've helped at least even if it's just one person I know that you've helped someone and I really appreciate you doing that and uh, to hear it also from a male perspective, I think is going to really hit home for a lot of the guys listening to this. And I, I honestly cannot thank you enough for speaking about your experiences and everything that you've gone through and are still going through. Well, thank you, Paige. That was really nice of you. I appreciate it. And it's it's good to see, um, to connect with someone on such a, you know, genuine level is emotionally because as you know there's so much fakeness out there there's so much bs and, and caught up in the social media world and everything that you got to do and especially if you're like in media you gotta you always gotta be on right you always gotta be like the best <laughs> version of yourself yeah and that's exhausting yes. sometimes you just want to be like no right now i want to cry and <laughs> yeah. this is this is me you know so you know jana and i are, are big advocates for that and we appreciate that in, in people and and so I appreciate you, you know, doing this podcast and, and doing the things that you're doing, because I can't imagine how it is. It's hard enough for, for men in our own right. But, you know, I can't imagine because I see it from my wife, like to be a, a beautiful woman and to get the shit that y'all get on a regular basis. And for you to be ostracized in your sport because of certain things about you physically or or aesthetically or whatever. And it's like things that you can't even help. And people just want to find some negativity. So the fact that you're yeah. able to stand up and not shy away from being a public face and public figure in the realm that you are doing is, I mean, that's a lot of strength right there and just goes to show that you're willing to work through your shit too because you're not letting these, neg these negative people dictate your life. Thank you. And I feel like men are actually fairly supportive towards women and we always talk about supporting women and women supporting other women but I feel like a lot of hatred from men towards women or even men towards men comes from the fact that no one ever talks about their mental health and I think that is such a big part of it and again like you're doing something that's really meaningful but I have a question because it seems like you've kind of had a hard relationship with football just like I have had with golf and once I stopped playing it took me a while to watch golf on tv and to want to go out and enjoy it <laughs> so like with shows like hard knocks do you enjoy watching that or is it something where you're like I don't want to do anything with football anymore like, I'm over it yeah For sure so <laughs> the first it took me so the first year after I retired which was 2015. So the season 2015 season, I couldn't watch it at all. And Jan is a football fan. So I'll be like, you got to go in the other room. I was like, I don't <laughs> even want to hear that shit. And so progressively over the last five years, I've gotten more and more involved again, where now, you know, I do fantasy football, I can purely watch it as a fan again. So now, and that was just over the last year or two that I'm really able to be completely undetached and watch it as a fan. Now, having said that with hard knocks, I love Hard Knocks, but that's harder to watch for me than watching a game because that's <laughs> that's the stuff that you miss the most, right? The yeah. camaraderie, the locker room, the jokes, the laughter, the day-to-day mm -hmm. -day grind. That's the stuff you ask any athlete. You know how it is. It's not the big, crazy moments that everyone would think that they'd miss. It's those moments, day-to-day -day grinding, practicing with your boys, with your locker room. So. I can't wait to watch the Los Angeles one, cause especially because they're doing two teams. But it's just that hurts my heart. Like it's 
I feel like I feel like this. I watch it like with my shoulders hunched over, kind of like <laughs> slightly in a fetal position and wanting to cry like as I watch it. So, but I'm excited for it. It's going to be great. Was the hardest part seeing guys that you were better than be successful or was it because that was yeah. hard for me knowing like I beat this girl in college or I beat her in this pro <laughs> vet and now she's uh-huh. like winning on the LPGA and I'm like I could have fucking done this yeah. like I, I could do this and I didn't do it and like that's what's hard for me or if it was it just that it's like it brought back too many hard memories of you know losing or whatever it may be what what was it that made it so difficult? It was definitely both, but more of the former, more of, you know, two things. One, seeing so many guys that I played with play. So now that I'm five years removed from retiring, and this would have been like my 12th year in the league if I was still in, there's a handful of guys. There's a few guys I can count on maybe one or two hands now. You know, before I knew people on every single team because just how much of a revolving door the NFL is and, and guys in and out. So it was really hard to watch, and mainly because of that. Because I would see guys, I'm like, how is that guy still playing? I was like, he is a (laughs) fucking scrub. And here I am, I get hurt too many times, and I just had bad luck. I should be out there. A hundred percent, a lot of it was that. So, I mean, it's tough, but that's natural, right? I feel like someone would be lying if they said, no, it didn't bother me at all. I was like, hey, man, good for you. No, fuck that. (laughs) How much... Because I know a lot of my friends who have played baseball, they say it's a business and the best player doesn't always play. And it seems a little bit like that with football. Do you think it is? Or if you are good enough, you're going to play? Or is it kind of like, who do you know? And how much you signed for out of college and the college that you went to that impacts your career? So what I will say about football, yeah, there are politics. Yes, it is business because – you know, it comes down to your salary cap number, how much you go against the cap in your contract. And, and, you know, especially early in your career, if you're in the same position as someone that was drafted in the second round and you were undrafted, even if you're better than the second rounder, if you're not significantly better, they're going to be like, well, we don't want our GM to look – the GM doesn't want to look bad that he drafted the second rounder and then cut him. So they're going to hold on to him. So there is some. Having said that, I equate this – to you know stuff I see my wife go through in the acting world because of like diversity and you know they have to hit a quota of how many people there's none of that on a football team okay the best player is gonna play they don't care if you're white yellow brown green orange it doesn't matter like you're gonna play if you're good enough now getting into the NFL is one thing but then staying there is a whole nother so it's Ultimately, it's not the same business as people might think it is because I, I ultimately, from my experience, the best player is going to play. But And it's also not the business. I have a friend who's just came out of college and his father-in-law is super connected and his father-in-law is trying to be like, hey, get on the phone with this guy and get on the phone with this guy and he's big in business. And I'm like, it doesn't really work like that. I was like, you can't just call a guy and be like, hey, I know him. Like, sign him I was like no the kid's got to be good enough he's got to have the tape he's got to have those things it's not just like oh you're gonna do your buddy a favor so there's less of that than I than I see in any other sport yeah so let's just say you were playing this year and everything that's going on with COVID which is a big topic of the hard knock season would you opt out knowing that you have you know a family and you want to be home with them or would you play 
you know, that decision is subjective depending (laughs) on your, depending on your personal situation with financials, contracts, uh, you know, opportunity for you to play. Are you starting? What all of that goes into play me? It would be really, really, really hard to pull me away from it because I never got comfortable. Even after five years, I was never comfortable. Like never thought I was good enough, too good to get cut. So even if it was my 10th year, I would still be like, I'm not good enough. Like who am I, who am I just to opt out and think I'm going to come back and play next year. So just my personality, I would probably play now. That'd be a discussion with me and my wife to have and our kids and everything like that. But also part of it right now is a strategy for some of these guys. Cause I see some of these like undrafted rookies who just, you know, signed with the team this summer opting out. And I'm like, you know what? That's actually genius because <laughs> they're getting accredited season and guaranteed money, like 150 grand at least if they have no pre pre, uh, you know, existing conditions. So I'm like, these kids are actually smart. And if I was in that situation, I'd probably do it. Cause they're probably gonna get cut anyway. <laughs> Actually, is really smart. Do you feel that is? Because everyone's talking about like the Marlins and how all of the players seem to be getting COVID. And I think about it, and I think it's so frustrating to see these guys who are making so much money and they can't just sit home for you know sixty days. How do you think people are reacting in the locker room? Do you think they're trying to keep the players accountable or how, I don't, cause I don't really know. Cause I've never really done a team sport. Like how does that right. even work? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> in my, again, in my experience in the locker rooms that I was in, if, if guys were going outside their bubble or whatever they agreed upon on the team, the locker room would be pissed. Yeah. Just like, you know, there's an undrafted rookie for the Seahawks. He just got cut last week because he snuck a girl into the team hotel tori what are you doing yeah he snuck her yeah he snuck tori in (laughs) so you're getting people cut it's unbelievable and so the laundry hamper (laughs) so this kid this kid's such an idiot not only is he an undrafted rookie risking his opportunity to play and make a team he does it and pete carroll was just like yo protect like team first like protect the team yeah like, what are you doing? And I would be pissed if I was part of that team. And I was a, I was abiding by all the rules that we set up or that the NFL set up. I'd be like, what are you doing? I wouldn't want that kid on my team. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. it would be really frustrating. I remember even in college when we had a no drinking rule and the kids would go and right. drink. And I was like, what are you doing? And they weren't That's even putting I, anyone else in danger. I can't even yeah. imagine. But again, I think this goes back to like the NCAA preparing – the kids to handle anything. They don't really do that. And we'll take a quick break. Yeah. And because you guys can't see this, but uh, <laughs> Michael is dressed all in golf clothes and he is ready to talk about some golf. So we're going to yes, do I that <laughs> after the break. And since this is a golf podcast, we're going to talk about golf. So, Michael, do you play a lot of golf? I do. And, you know, my wife was actually getting on me recently because I wasn't using our 
the club that we joined when we moved back to Tennessee that much. And she was like, we're paying for this. Like, I, I'm like the only wife telling you, you need to go golf. <laughs> I was like, all right, you, if you, you're going to get what you asked for. Now I'm, I'm going today. I'm going tomorrow. And yesterday she's like, oh, you're going twice in a row. I was like, you can't say shit. I was like, you've been begging me to go play. So, yes, I like to play at least once a week, if not more. Do you like, do you like to watch it on TV? I love it. Yeah. Absolutely love it. Used to question my dad why he, how he could watch golf on TV when I was a kid, but now I get it. We talk a lot about the broadcast maybe not being the best for golf and how sometimes golf doesn't bring in new viewers because it tends to be a little bit boring. Do you agree with that? And if you do, what do you think that golf could do to bring in new people who are just not golf like avid golf fans? Historically, yes, I do agree with that. What they can do is like what they did. Uh, was it? I don't remember what tournament it was when they had Phil. When they brought Phil in. Oh yeah, the the PGA. Yeah, the PGA. Mm-hmm. So when they had Phil in, it was, and I was I was even listening to your podcast when when you guys were talking about it, and uh, the guy that you had on there too. I don't remember his name, Josh or something. He had meant, he had compared him to Tony Romo. And I was like, that's exactly it. And for, for people that aren't big into watching golf or novice golfers don't understand, that's the best thing, in my opinion, that you can do to have someone who can articulate it in layman's terms, like what's going on and, and a golfer's logic but behind a shot and the things that Tony's able to do with football. Even for me, as, as someone who played football my, football my entire life, I enjoyed watching games. I would watch the games that he was commentating for that reason. So I would do the same thing in golf. If you get someone who has the personality, who can articulate themselves and explain it in such a way that people can understand. So that's that's what I would do. 100% agree. And I say that because the Wyndham Championship was on this week and it was so fucking boring. I watched maybe <laughs> like 10 minutes of it. It was the last 10 minutes. And Jim Herman ended up winning. He shot 61-63 on the weekend, which was really good playing. Crazy. But to put it in perspective on how boring it is, it, they showed him drinking water probably five times. They just kept cutting <laughs> to him drinking water because that was the only action that was somewhat interesting. And I, I couldn't do it. I feel like they need to do something for maybe like the off weeks when they still have an event, but not the biggest names are there because the PGA last week was right. amazing. And we oh, had so much amazing. to talk about. And this week, it, I mean, with the Wyndham, it was just, eh, it was okay. It was boring to me. <laughs> yeah i mean i don't you know they got to do something with it that's the only way they're gonna allow it to grow but and that's the thing if instead of showing tim herman drinking water you have a guy who can articulate a you know a golfer's mindset you know approaching a shot and everything let me ask you this though with some of the rules things that was were going on in, in these tournaments and stuff that we'll get to in a second i'm sure you'll bring up what's your biggest pet peeve page when you're playing golf with somebody what they what what can they do that would piss you off the most? I was you just set me up perfectly because mm. slow play drives me absolutely bananas and I cannot stand it when anyone plays slow. There is no reason for you to play slow. And this was a big topic of discussion because at the USAM, uh Tyler Shafasi, he ended up winning but in the final match, he literally took five minutes to line a putt up. He was playing incredibly slow, and it was very disrespectful to his playing partners. I have been in 
plenty of tournaments where I have played with competitors who are so slow, like where they're getting one, two shots because of it, penalties. And that is the worst possible thing. And I think it's horrible for golf too. I hate slow play. I hate it more than anything. (laughs) I like it. I am getting so heated. I'm shaking right now because I fucking hate slow play so much. (laughs) Do you think any of it is part strategy? A thousand percent. I think it's a way to get into someone else's head. And I put out a tweet about slow play and a lot of people thought that I was talking about beginners and beginners are actually quite fast. They they will pick up and they seem mm-hmm. to be more courteous of everyone around them. It's the good players who take the most time, and especially during competition. And I feel like guys on the PGA Tour, LPGA Tour, and then the USAM, the better players, they're setting such a bad example for young golfers because they're looking up to these guys and they're seeing them take two minutes for a pre-shot routine. And they're like, okay, that's what I need to do. Or the parents are seeing them doing that. And then they tell their kids to do that. And so it's just slow play all the time. And I, I hate it. I hate it so much. You know, I can see how they're just setting a bad example because here's the thing too. The pros, as you know, someone who's an elite golfer, y'all are thinking about a lot more than the amateur golfer is. So you guys are taking different things into consideration, how this course plays, what kind of grass it is, the wind. Guys like me, I'm just, you know, I'm sitting up. I don't even take practice swings. So you would love to golf with me because I don't take any practice swings. I just stand up there and hit the ball. Um, but I would have to agree with you that slow, slow play bothers me. But also, if someone is over there taking practice swings, like on the tee box while I'm about to tee off, like, and you just hear that, like every other second because they're trying to get warmed up. Either they, they, they just shanked one off the tee, so they're trying to fix it, which they're not going to fucking <laughs> fix it. Or they're about to tee off thinking they're going to bomb one. When they're not, they're probably going to shank it. And I'm sitting there trying to tee off. That's my second behind slow play. Yeah, that's that's not great either. And there was another incident at the USAM. Actually, it was at Bandon Dunes. Have you played Bandon Dunes before? Have you been out there? I haven't yet, but it's on my list. You need to get out there. It's like the ultimate buddies trip. It is an oasis. It's heaven. Is that the one in Oregon? Yeah, it's in yeah. Oregon. They have like four courses plus. Uh, it's called the Punch Bowl, which is a putting like a massive putting green, and then the Preserve, which is part three course, and it's spectacular. It's absolutely amazing. But on one of the players was lining up a putt, and the competitor was standing directly behind him as if he was reading the putt and the guy putting like had to shoo him off and there was people were split on it they said that the guy shouldn't have shooed him off and then people were saying that it's it's bad it's really bad etiquette to stand behind someone and I feel like with golf there's not much that you can do to get into your competitor's head and so I think they're just trying to play mind games of just trying to get in their line of vision or to play slow like what would you guys do in football to get in the other guys heads um some of that for sure like you know if there's a big pile up and you take your time getting off of somebody or little things like you're getting out of a pile and you untie somebody's shoe while you're down there (laughs) you know what i mean like long gone are the days where people are like punching each other in the dick or trying to do things like that it's (laughs) It's little petty things like untie your shoe because that's just annoying. You're like, why would you do that? 
He's gonna fucking untie my shoe. <laughs> um, but the game's so fast and things are going on so much. But besides trash talking or little things like that, there's really not much. Can you imagine if people, guys in golf, would just punch each other in the dick when they were like getting up for a putt? Or <laughs> I think that would increase viewership right there. That might be the now answer. Now that page. I would watch. That's it right there. I know. I've been trying to promote fighting in golf, and it's not going well so far. <laughs> it literally makes no sense. <laughs> well, and it's funny because when I first saw kind of what was happening at the USAM, I was so quick to be. Like, that's tacky, that's against golf etiquette, and I almost, that's everything I stand against. Like, I, I should be for that, I should be all against golf etiquette, and I think it's good, so I'm, I'm having a change of my opinion on it and what they're doing, because I like when they try to get in each other's heads and make it a little bit more interesting instead of just being this prim and proper sport. For sure. I think they, the USGA needs to lax things up a little bit, like allow allow these personalities to come out right because that's the thing you don't get to know these golfers much you know while they're playing granted most of them have to kind of stay like you know in their head to themselves because it's the most mental sport out there as you said earlier it's it's a mind fuck and it's the most humbling game for sure so i mean it, it would be fun for them to do something but at the same time it is one of those games of respect so like you know you don't want to lose the integrity of that but uh, who knows yeah, integrity. We don't Ech, need that. Who needs that? <laughs> who shit? needs integrity? So, do you gamble a lot on the golf course? Is that is that your thing? I don't. I I don't. Um, no. I when I go out, I go out to have fun. I you know tomorrow I'm going out with a buddy who's this is his second time playing in like a year, so he's gonna be one of those. I'm like, all right, pick up your ball, let's go. <laughs> like just drop where I'm at, you know. Um, and then I'm playing with a neighbor buddy of mine who's you know, like a seven handicap. So, um, I go out and have a good time. If it's with my teammates in the past, we would gamble a lot, you know? Um, but now with uh, a wife and two kids and, and <laughs> my money is, you know, is, uh, goes a lot of different places other than just myself. There's, I can't be gambling on the golf course too much. Yeah. No one really um, wants to do like $1 bets. I found out. <laughs> no, 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 It's, it's gotta be worth something for <laughs> yeah. sure. What's your what's the favorite course you've ever played? I was just about to ask you the same thing. As of right now, so I have a bucket list in a golf digest last year that had top hundred public courses in the country. I'd just taken my dad on a uh, a golf trip to Monterey Bay, play like Pebble and you know, all the courses up there, Spanish Bay and uh Spyglass. And so I started knocking off courses on this list because we travel enough where or we used to travel enough yeah. where <laughs> places we would go, I would try to find a course and kind of couple that in with where we're going but shadow creek in vegas is a course that i would recommend to anybody if they had to play one course i would play over pebble i would play it over numerous courses amazing courses i've been it is amazing shadow creek is one of my absolute favorite courses it is incredible it is beautiful and the caddies there are great the staff there is great it's really laid back for being a pretty prestigious course but everyone has a shadow creek story what's your shadow creek story <laughs> first tell me yours so i know i know where this is going okay. i was playing in a celebrity event there 
and it was Sunday. So we would play Saturday and we would play Sunday. And Sunday was always a surprising day because people would either show up 20 minutes after their tea time, they're showing up still drunk from the night before, everyone's going out, it's Vegas, you wanna have fun. Mm. And so one of the guys on my team, he showed up on the fourth hole and he was like, guys, I'm so sorry. And I was like, it's fine, it's fine. He started just throwing back drinks. He had four <laughs> drinks and all the all the cup holders were filled with drinks. His cooler was filled with drinks, just completely hammered. And it was just getting progressively worse. And by the 18th hole, it's for people who haven't played Shadow, it's a kind of downhill dog leg par five and there's a creek that runs up the right side mm -hmm. and so we had a guy bomb it almost all the way down there we had only about 120 <laughs> yards in but it was on a very steep slope the ball was way below our feet and so this guy goes up and he is stumbling and we're like this is good should we like this is gonna be really good so he gets up there and he whiffs it, does like a 360, falls on the ground, and starts rolling down the hill. And our caddy had to chase after him and grab him by the shirt so he wouldn't fall in the creek. And he dragged him all oh the way up. And this is the best part. So we finish 18, and he goes, guys, I got to jump on my jet. I'm going to Coachella. And just goes straight to Coachella. This guy is an animal. An animal absolute animal it was one of the funniest things i have ever what? seen on a golf course sorry guys i just basically fell into the creek now i gotta go to coachella of course I, you do. he Why couldn't you even sleep? he couldn't even stand up straight like he was wobbling he had no idea where he was what was going on and it was so funny how old of a guy was this i was probably 28 he was 28 yeah Jesus. He's like a famous actor. I, I don't, I just don't want to name him. Oh, even better. Good. You can tell me off I I'll tell you guys yeah. off because it makes the story even better once you know I who it is. Wait. And that ends our show so I can hear. Okay, bye. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, my Shadow Creek story can't even come close to that because it was like Jana had a she was doing a music gig in Vegas. It was when we were living in LA. So it was a quick, easy flight. I flew in uh, earlier than she did that day. And rent it because you know, you have to stay on an MGM property or whatever, mm -hmm. if you go play shadow. So I got the cheapest room I could at like the grand. And uh, <laughs> it was like $60 didn't even check in just went to the lobby. So the limo could pick me up and went and played. It was just me two buddies from la were supposed to fly out meet me they didn't end up they weren't able to end up coming so it was just me my caddy was like this old jamaican guy named cookie like it was <laughs> unbelievable who he would just like if i would mess up a shot he would just take my club throw a ball down he's like no you got to do it like this and then like pitch it like two feet from the hole <laughs> like with no practice so but it was it's that's the course i've talked about the most to people is Shadow Creek, and I just want to take everybody there because it's it's amazing. It's incredible, especially once you hear a lot of the stories, too. Like, before, they used to have, like, exotic animals on the golf course, and they had to take them all off after one guy, like, bladed a shot into... <laughs> 
Yeah, it's I played like Shadow Creek. I killed an elephant, actually. Uh, literally. On the, on the seventh like, hole. They're like, that animal's like, like going extinct, so we're going to have to like, it's like, you killed like one of four, so we're going right. to take all the animals off. But the stories that everyone has at Shadow, everyone has a good Shadow Creek story. So if you are ever in Vegas, stay at MGM property, you definitely have to go there. But guys, I'm a little offended because... I feel like IG models get a bad rap to begin with, and I'm always fighting for them. Did you guys see that basketball said no IG models in the bubble? How terrible is that? Who came out and said that? I (laughs) didn't. The NBA literally said if you didn't meet them or have contact with them in person, (laughs) then you cannot bring them into the bubble so if you meet them online they are not allowed in and everyone's like ig models no flying in no flying in your oh geez how do you monitor that i, I mean, think they actually have to fill out like paperwork like i met this person here my relation is this and what or relationship whatever it needs to be and if it's like i met them on instagram it's like nope nope <laughs> Ladies, run to Claire's, get yourself a fake engagement ring, throw that on your finger, get your background story. I feel like this is the easiest thing to hack. Tori, do you know this from experience? Tori's <laughs> trying. She's doing process of elimination. She's tried everything which, else, so this is what she's exactly, coming up with. Which I'm working on my DMs, which is why, Mike, I wanted you to tell a story and how you met your wife. Oh, And then give circle. me the tips and everybody else listening, too. Full circle. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, Ann Page, I met my wife on Twitter. This was back before Instagram was really a thing. This was in 2014. So Instagram was still up and coming. Twitter was like the shit still. And uh, yeah, I followed her and she didn't follow me back right away. And three months go by and every month I just strategically like liked something or favorited something <laughs> and... Because we both had the blue check mark, you know, regardless of whether you follow each other, like it notifies you. And uh, third time was a charm. The third team, third thing I like favorited or something, she followed me back. And then I was giggling with like my buddy that was living with me in my house at the time. And like we were 13 <laughs> year olds, like, you know, the hottest boy in school just talked to us or something. And it became a we thing. So him and I are like, OK, what are we going to say? How are we going to talk to her? How, how do we like come up with this DM? Boys don't do that. We did. Do they? 100% we did. And long story short, we were, we're like, okay, we're going to watch this movie. Then we are going to send her a DM. <laughs> Five minutes into this movie, I couldn't. I was like, no, I got it. DM'd her right away. I said something super lame like, uh, hey, thanks for the follow back. Like, I've always been a fan or some shit. Long story short, <laughs> next day we talk on the phone, or she gives me her number. Day after that, we talk on the phone. Day after that, we FaceTime. Day after that, I fly to Chicago to see a show of hers at Lincoln Park Zoo. We kiss that day. Ten days later, we say I love you. A few months later, I moved to Nashville for her, and here we are five years later married. <laughs> oh, that's a cute story. Yeah, so there is a chance for all of you who want to slide into those DMs. You can do it. Having a little blue check mark does help. <laughs> so I like I, to thank the, the NFL for the reason I found my wife. <laughs> so I actually do have a question because your wife is famous. And mm-hmm. do you ever feel 
is that hard to deal with? Do you ever feel the pressure? Like she gets more attention than I do or mm. like she's always busy or do you compare your career to her career? Because I feel like it's always the other way around where I had um, Haley Cleal on and she's a Sports Illustrated swimsuit model. And we always said that once we start dating a famous man, we're always associated with them. And it's like our name comes second. And with you, do you actually feel like it's flipped around? Oh, 100% it is. Um, And that was one of my biggest struggles after I left football because not only was I losing my identity, like in general, like not playing football anymore, I immediately become Janet Kramer's husband. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I, I was just completely lost and it was all about her schedule. And, you know, she had no time to slow down. Like she had no time to like, coddle me and be like it's like she was on the rise like her songs were doing great like she was in the prime of her music career and like touring every weekend and and so I was just along for the ride and that's how I felt and I took a lot of it out on her unfairly which sucked and so even to this day I have my moments but it's only it, it comes from my place of just wanting to single-handedly provide more when mm-hmm. we do a lot of things together, majority of what we do is together, but she still has her Instagram stuff. She still has her acting. She still has her music. Um, I'm working on a few things on my own, but a lot of what we do is together. So it's taken time, but I'm to the point now where it's, I'm not intimidated by it. Like I was early on. I, I don't, I, I'm not offended by it or hurt by it. I, I encourage it. I'm so proud of her and what she does and, and who she is and how hardworking she is. And so I'm just trying to keep up, but I love it now. Well, that must be nice that you feel like you guys are equal and you can support each other and you're going through kind of like the same thing, but you're, you're a bit of a unicorn cause you don't have social media. I don't. What? Why? I just <laughs> like, that's so shocking to me. Cause my whole life, my whole business is social media. I feel like there's so many pros, but there are also so many cons. Like what made you decide to delete your social media? So I think my Twitter still exists. Um, the initial the initial reason why I, I stopped using Twitter was when, you know, cases of infidelity and all that. My wife and I went through all of that. It's like, all right, we reconcile and get back together. I was I'm like, all right, hey, how about my Twitter? Like, you know, let's get back <laughs> on there. That's a great idea. Um so it started with that, but then ever since then, it's like, I've never been one to post a lot. I've never been one to, to, to be real active on social media anyway. That's just not my personality. And with Jana being as active as she is, her Instagram has become like our family, like us. Yeah. And so it's like, even if I had an Instagram, it would just be redundant, you know? And so... We've started this thing where I do Mike Monday. So on Mondays, I actually take over her Instagram most of the time and, and do things throughout the day and kind of film our life through my perspective. Um, and so that's that's been a fun way to kind of have my own thing. But it's honestly, it's relieving because I see how much it, it can consume people. And my wife, and for those of you who make money on Instagram and social media, like it's tough. And it's a lot harder than people actually give credit for. Like with, you know, when Jana has to do her stories or do her this or that. And I'm like, this is actually really taxing and exhausting. Um, but I love, I love not having it. Honestly, it's freeing. 
I know. I just have like these dirty fantasies of one day just deleting my social media and like living in a <laughs> shack in the jungle and just never talking to anyone ever again. Uh, it, normally it's after like doing 10 stories, trying to do a sponsored post and I just end up in tears, but it's it's a challenge. I, I wish I could delete my social media sometimes. It is refreshing, but you make money on it. Got to keep grinding. Does Jana, you said she's a big football fan. Does she like NFL better or is she like college football? NFL. She doesn't pay attention to really college at all. Um, she used to be a big Lions fan, but they're not that good typically. So she's just, she's, she's a fan of the game, which is fun. It's good to have a, you know, a partner that's, that's into that stuff. And actually she's speaking of partner into stuff. She's wanted to pick up golf at times. I told her, I was like, but she's like, I know that's your thing. I was like, it's not just that it's about my thing. It's I'm terrified because you're so competitive that you're going to start <laughs> and you're just not going to stop until you're better than me. And then we're going to go out there and now it's going to be even more humbling because I'm going to bring my wife out and she's going to beat my ass every time. I would never want to be with someone who is better than me at golf. I could not handle it at all because I am so competitive and I always want that to be my thing. Yeah, same guy. See me with me and my boyfriend. We're like, oh, so competitive. I know, Tori, like, you guys so are cute. always arguing. Oh, we just can't, you know, it's just too competitive. But before we wrap up, let's do one TNA with you and Mike. I have one picked out. Okay. Okay, this is from Beasley the Springer. I've surprisingly been hitting my drives quite well, typically 250 to 300 and relatively straight. So on a lot of par fours, I have been having less than 90 yards to go. From there, I'm only getting the green about 30 to 40% of the time. I can't hit my gap wedge reliably at a full swing, so I've been struggling with choked PW swings. Any tips? So I would say the best way to practice your wedges is going 100 yards out. So find a target about 100 yards. It could be on the range. It could be on the golf course when no one is around. But then pick five to 10 clubs and you have to hit each club to 100 yards. This is really great to work on your touch and your feel. And even though you might never use these clubs out there on the golf course, it's just a really great thing to practice. You should feel the most confident with your wedges, and this is where you're going to save your most shot, the most shots. So really put majority of your time into your short game and your wedges, and I guarantee you will improve at least five shots if you dedicate at least 25 minutes of your practice just focusing on that every single day. It doesn't need a lot of time. You don't need a, to hit a ton of golf balls, but you just need to practice purposely and really focus on those wedges. What she said. <laughs> <laughs> what's, the be- what's the best part of your game? Mine? Yeah. Um, my irons, probably my approach. Uh, driver's the worst part of my game. So my score dictates, is purely dictated on how I get off the tee box. Yeah. So typically when the driver's not working, I'll do four iron or three wood because I'm more comfortable with those. Um, but... Yeah, approach shots and around the green is probably the the best. So that's where I'm able to save strokes because very rarely do I even have to two-putt, usually because I don't always hit the green in regulation. But if I don't, I'm a, I'm a one-putt in after I after I uh, chip on. So, um, so yeah. But driver, mm-mm, we don't get along. Do you just try to hit it too hard? I used to, but even now I'm not even trying. It just... <laughs> It's the worst. And let me ask you this. 
real quick before we're done. My question, golf question is, so when I have time to play golf, I like to play. Like, I don't want to go take time necessarily at the range. As much as I understand practice, how important practice is coming from a professional, you know, athletic background, I don't, I, I would rather just play. So for someone like me who, when they have time, they just play, is there anything on the course I can do to treat it as kind of a practice? Yeah, I've actually been working with these guys and they set up practice plans for you. And um, it's still really new, so I could talk about that later on. But I think having a set practice plan, regardless if it's, if it's on the golf course or if it's practicing, you just need to go out there with intention. You don't need to spend five hours beating golf balls. You only really need 25 minutes, 10 minutes. So before your round, struggle like find what you struggle with. So for you, it's driver. And so one drill that I absolutely love that I do all the time is I act like I'm on the golf course on the range. So I go through my entire pre-shot routine. I pick two flags and I have to hit, normally I would say I have to hit 10 in between those two flags in a row before I leave. So for you, it could be your goal is six or it could be five, but go through your entire, or one, whatever it may be. Um, and you just, and you can make it a wide fairway. You can make it a, a narrow fairway. You can really challenge yourself, but really try to do what you're doing on the golf course, on the driving range, when you have time to practice and practice with a purpose. And then when you're out on the golf course, if you're just playing by yourself or just for fun, drop a second ball mm-hmm. or another drill I like to do on the golf course is play two balls. And then you have to play your worst ball. And so mm. that, yeah. So that way you learn how to puts more pressure on you and then when you're put in those hard situations you learn how to get out of them it helps your course management so really i think if you really love to play practice out on the golf course and do the two ball drill i think that will be the best thing for you love it well thank you so much for joining us today i think everyone is really going to enjoy this episode i can't thank you enough again for being so open and honest and talking about your life and everything that you've been through it really truly does mean a lot and i think this was a very impactful episode for so many people so again thank you so much and hope you guys enjoyed and we'll we'll see you next week follow playing around with Paige renee on iHeartRadio. Or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.